Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we are recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, my week has been pretty good, uh, especially because you've got me onto this, like the best show I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> which is this this Netflix reality show called Blown Away. And it it has really blown me away. Oh, my God. Look, the first season is actually not a Netflix season. So this Blown Away is a glass blowing competition reality TV show that was on like American TV, which Netflix has picked up and renewed for season two, which just came out like this week. And I fucking love blown away so much it is like very niche reality tv because it's i'm literally watching 10 people like make random glass objects and sculptures out of like glass blowing i had i don't know a thing about glass blowing i know now i fuck we're learning the terminology here but like we've just been watching it and it's actually so good it's like very wholesome viewing it's not like catty kind of reality tv it's just a bunch of people who are really good at glass blowing making cool shit it's fucking awesome. Yeah, so like every week, uh, the group of contestants are given a specific brief. Some are like, you know, this week you have to like express yourself through glassware or they're given like you have to make a household object. And then they're just doing really strange, really creative stuff uh, with this very difficult medium, which is the glassware. And oh my, it's so stressful it's as well because so every episode people are breaking stuff last minute and every time the glass shatters, I just tense up. Oh, it, it's, it's really dreadful. But- like you were saying, like we're really learning the terminology. And I feel like when we watch it, we just become like these art critics. We're like, <laughs> wow, like the way they're using the glass to express like fluidity. Like I have no idea what I'm talking about, but suddenly we just become these, I know. Look these at art us. historians. These acting like fucking experts. But it does that to you because it's actually so like immersive. You're watching it and you get so into it and you learn all the terminology very quickly because they just use it quite casually and you're kind of just forced to learn it. And then I'm like, oh no, the glass slipped off her punty. And like, I did not know what a punty was five minutes ago. <laughs> it's actually so good. So we binged the whole season one in like a day or two because uh, I got Mitch onto it because I've actually been watching it with my family. And then we started watching season two um, a couple of days ago and we're like halfway through because they're very short. They're like 10 episodes long or something. It's one person per episode goes home and there's like 10 people. So it's short, easy, like 25 minute episodes. However... Unfortunately, there is always something you can. I just There's always. Something. I feel like you can. I just can't enjoy anything one hundred percent without like something being like a little bit problematic. And I was able to ignore it a little bit in season one, but I feel like in season two of Blown Away, it's kind of rearing its ugly head, and I can't avoid it. And yes, it's racism. <laughs> it's just oh my god. So okay. To give you, it's like slight spoilers, but I mean, do you guys care it's about spoilers? It's only for the early, we're not going to spoil who wins. It's only for the first couple episodes of like each season. So it's yeah. not a big spoiler. I don't know if anybody here gives a fuck about blown away spoilers, but I feel like I had to say that um, in case you guys want to have a wholesome way to end your evening. But okay, so there's a judge. Her name is Catherine Gray. She is an older white woman. She's been in the glass blowing business or whatever for like many years. Like this is her niche that she's an expert in. Um... However, so the, with the contestants in both seasons, everybody is white except for two people. 
So in the first season, there was one black man and one Asian woman. And in the se- season two, there was also one black man and one Asian woman and everybody else is white. Um, lol, I know. But anyway, in the first season, I just noticed a couple of like weird things with the judge and the one Asian woman on the show. Her name was Momo. She's Japanese. I love Momo. She was cool. We, we, we stand Momo. She was really great. Um, but anyway, so the judge, Jane, like Momo made a lot of items that were culturally significant to her and Japanese culture. So it was like one thing where she made like a sushi, you know, it was like, it was like cute, relevant stuff. And like, she was very much in it to like represent being Asian. Like that was very much part of the reason she was in the competition. It was a big part of her identity and it informed a lot of the choices she made in the show and something that really frustrated me was just a complete refusal to like be culturally sensitive by the judge and it's it's not as overt in the first season as it is in the second season so we were able to kind of slide by and ignore it a little bit to be honest uh in the first season but there are times where like she's judging one of momo's pieces and she'll like criticize a part of it because she thinks that either the colors are wrong or like blah, 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 blah. But like it's literally that way because that is the way to do it in like Japanese culture. Like she has done the culturally correct way of making this thing or like that those colors have cultural significance or whatever. Like it's not like she chose them for design. Like it's actually a cultural thing. And then Kathy comes in. It's like, oh, the, the color choice is so tacky. Like this doesn't make sense to me. Like it's a bad piece. And it's like, no, it just has significance that you would just completely ignorant to yeah and you refuse to sort of take into consideration because it is told to you that it has significance yeah and it just felt like really like white feminism kind of vibes because this judge kathy like regularly talks about being a woman who is like you know a minority in glass blowing and there are other women in the show who discuss like you know being like a woman in a man's world kind of vibe with glass blowing and how they're you know even like kathy talks about how even the equipment for glass blowing is actually made for like the average male body and so women have to often get things adjusted to fit their bodies and how it's like actually very sexist and she's able to like talk about sexism but she not once ever discusses racism or like imagine what it's like not just being a woman in glass blowing but like a Japanese woman in glass blowing like just the complete ignorance to the racial elements the the lack of intersectionality it bothered me in season one but not enough to like really like stop me from enjoying the show right now we're in season two right and there's a black man who's in the show and he like the moment I saw him, I was rooting for him because he's actually just like a lovely guy and like he is in it to represent, but he's so chill as well. Like he's just here doing things that he thinks represent himself and his culture. And if he goes home, he goes home, but he's just happy to like be out here exposing people to like African culture. It's amazing. Like he's, he's great. And his first piece that he makes is a vase um, and it's a black vase. Uh, and it's first of all, fucking beautiful like technique amazing i know i'm not an expert but like it's great and then on top of that he writes like a really beautiful rationale about being objectified like the the objectification of blackness and stuff and it's like intelligent and really more like has more depth than pretty much anything else anybody else has made and Catherine is saying they're like I don't know why he chose black for the vase. Like, it's just so, you know, it's such a heavy color. And then the other judge is literally like, 
uh, well, it's a commentary on the objectification of black bodies. Like, bitch, did you not read the rationale for this piece that you are supposed to be judging? I was furious. I was going to throw hands. Like, I was actually angry on this man's behalf because I was like, you didn't even take five seconds to, like, actually look into the very clear racial elements of his piece. The fact that he is literally being the token black man in this show. He is the only person representing, like, being dark-skinned and being black and being a person of colour aside from one other Asian woman. Like, he also has to fight the model minority myth. Like, this man is here representing, creating amazing artwork that, like, is actually has so much cultural relevance. And she's like, why is it black? Bro. But then as soon as the host brings it up, like, oh, well, this is the significance of the piece. She's like, oh, yeah, like, I really understand that, you know, as a, as a woman. <laughs> she's like, oh. And she immediately, immediately she derails. Immediately derails it as well, though. Not just changes the tune oh, of yeah. being like, I get it. But then she's also like, I get it because I'm a woman and I'm, you know, I understand, like, not fitting in. And it's like, you did not just derail a conversation about of the objectification of black bodies and being a minority like race, like a black person. And then be like, Oh, but I get it. Cause I'm a woman. Like you're white. And you're the judge of this show. You're literally an authority on glass blowing. You do not get to tell this black man who you were literally basically passively racist to five minutes ago. Oh, you get it. Cause you're a woman. It was like, Oh my God, peak white feminism. I was actually losing my goddamn mind watching this show. Cause it was pissing me off so much. And then, the episode after, or a couple episodes after that, there was just another incident with this contestant, the the black contestant, his name's Jason. And then there's another contestant who's like this big, smug, uh, white man, liberal, oh. Chris, who if we- If y'all watch him, you'll actually like want to throttle him. He is incredibly talented. In fact, it seems like everyone there knows who he is. Like, he's just taught everyone. He's like a very well-known, very well-connected white man who has been doing glass blowing for a very long time. But despite his- excellent connections and really great talent like he can make good shit he just never fucking follows a brief he does not listen to instructions he does whatever the fuck he wants and for some reason we all know why he's not been booted off the show for it despite the fact that other contestants have all at some point been booted for not following a brief but he keeps getting away with it and then and then here's where i'm like Catherine, you're a fucking racist is because jason jason a lovely man that I adore who is out here representing black culture gets booted off even though they literally talk about how his technique was really good because this is the first time he's doing sculpting and blah, blah, blah. But they boot him off because uh, it's just like your character didn't translate through enough. Like I didn't know enough about your character. Chris didn't even make a character. And this man stayed on purely because they gave him the benefit of the doubt because he's a well-connected white man. He probably has potential. He has potential. Jason, a black man who is like not as well-known, who arguably has more potential because he hasn't been in the glassblowing business for the past 40 fucking years or whatever, gets kicked off in a technicality while this other man has been breaking rules from day one. He's still here. Oh, I know God. we went on way longer than we wanted to Surely about this. Surely we'll have to cut this down. But I'm we'll just, see. like, angry. I'm just angry because, like, you can't go anywhere without fucking white privilege in your face and, like, racism in your face. Because I was like, this is like this judge has now consistently displayed, like, cultural insensitivity and racial insensitivity in judging people's work. And I'm like, how many times can you fucking do this? <laughs> like, without anyone calling you out? I don't know. Problematic. That was my heated rant for the day. <laughs> um, blown away. But... Despite that, it's a very good show. You guys should totally watch it. We really enjoy it. We are we are unreasonably invested in this show. 
Anyways, I'm going to move on in today's topic because I think we really should get to there. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to have a couple of segments rather than a really long one where we're going to discuss the very recent, uh, much hyped, very talked about film, Promising Young Woman, uh, but more specifically, why we really fucking disliked it. Uh, we're going to talk about it's like flawed feminist politics, you know, the plot devices I didn't like and just the implications of this very controversial ending. Uh, And then we're going to get into a little discussion on cancel culture or rather who is capable of being cancelled, who isn't, why and how does that happen, the power structures, the racial and gender dynamics of this conversation. But before we get into all that, we are going to follow up on the Britney Spears saga after the New York Times documentary titled Framing Britney came out earlier this week and we just watched it yesterday. So we have a lot to talk about. I really enjoyed uh, Framing Britney as a documentary. I actually think it was really good. Uh, in a lot of ways. I think framing Britney Spears did actually a very good job at showing how fucked up it was that the media sexualized her from such a young age. It shows quite early on in the documentary a scene uh, in a live like television interview from when Britney was 10 years old. And she looks younger. She looks like a baby. She's in the frilly little doll's dress. Like she's cute and very, very young. And this, like, 75-plus-year-old man is like to her, oh, like, you're so adorable, you've got such pretty eyes, do you have a boyfriend? But it's, like, it's creepy. And she's all like, oh, no. And he's all like, what? Why? And then when she says boys are mean, he's like, no, what? how about me? Like, how about me? And the implication there is so foul. Like, he doesn't say, can I be your boyfriend? But the implication of, like, well, I'm, I'm a nice guy. Like, what about me? Pick me. It's so... She is 10 and very visibly uncomfortable. Like from the video, like she is confused. She doesn't really know how to respond to the situation. She kind of falters because she's 10 and a guy is pretty much coming on to her and he's like 80. So it's creepy and it's gross. And then not long after that, they show us another snippet of an interview uh, where another, again, older man asks teenage Brittany, I think she's about 16 in the interview, about her boobs. He like it starts off with him being like, "Oh, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about it." And she's like, "Talking about what?" And she's like, "Cute and innocent." Like, "Talking about what?" And he's like, "Your breasts." And the look on her face when he says that is heartbreaking. Like she her face just falls because this creepy, gross older man is asking her about what her tits look like. Like on a live interview and she is like 16. Like, how would you even deal with that situation? It is messed up. There are so many clear attempts of like grooming and sexualization of her as a child star, um, which has been happening since she was literally like 10 and no one protected her. And I think it did a really good job of, well, framing Britney, but like framing her as like somebody who's like not this like quote unquote like unhinged person that a lot of people like to pretend she is, including in a conservatorship, that she's actually just a woman who is a victim of like the patriarchy and capitalism. Um, and that is why she's in the situation that she is now. And that explains a lot of the mental illnesses that she suffered um, and a lot of the things that she has done that people don't understand. It kind of goes into really like a really good depth about her quote unquote meltdown actually really interrogates uh, the media and the way it responded to her and the situations that led to her behaving the way she did. And I particularly really like how it frames the way she shaved her head because it gives us so much backlog a backstory of like what happened who she is the media responding to her the political context of the time like everything 
And then after you're like, wow, poor Britney, she really can't catch a fucking break. Like she really has no privacy, paparazzi in her face 24-7. She's just, you know, being completely abused by like men all around her. And then once you start to feel like that, then it starts to talk about her shaving her head. And it's so well done. I think it does a really good job of humanizing her struggle and particularly her struggle as a woman who was commodified without her consent because I just it's so good because basically I think what it was teaching us and what I have been saying for a very long time to be honest is that Britney shaving her head was not an act of like insanity it was actually an act of clarity I think for the first time in a long time if ever Britney was just like you know what this is my fucking body like this is my body it was an open refusal to engage in her own sexualization and commodification by the forces that be you know it was like a rejection of her status as an object or as someone's sexy little pet it was her moment of like regaining control of herself and her freedom because she was basically like fuck you sexualize this objectify this like commodify this That was what she was doing when she shaved her head. She was just sick of people constantly like treating her like she's this cute, pretty little pet and controlling everything. And by damaging her celebrity reputation, she actually broke free of a lot of the restraints that were placed upon her to act as a certain type of person. Because now that she's shaved her head, her hair, like which is a symbol of who she's supposed to be, she's free. I get it. I totally get it. I think it's one of the most sane things she's ever done. I think it's like actually a moment of rebellion and clarity and a rejection of capitalism. And it's like, it's a feminist moment. She's reclaiming herself and her body and her femininity outside of her looks and her hair. I think it's like, I get it. I fucking get it. And I really like that the documentary really kind of drives at home. Maybe not in the words that I just used, but there is definitely an air of like what she did was actually completely reasonable given the circumstances and Literally anybody in that situation would do the same thing. She's not unhinged, quote unquote. She's not incapable of making sane decisions. She was a person that was pushed to breaking point and nobody else would have lasted that long. It also, and this is a spicy part that I know you guys are all waiting for. Yes, it does address the conservatorship. And particularly, it, it's actually very interesting how they approach Britney's relationship with her father, James Spears, who, if you listened to our last episode on Free Britney, you would know is her conservator at the moment and somebody she's trying to fight against in the legal system. It sets up, like, it barely talks about James, but it sets up a background, a history of failed business ventures. Um, It talks a lot about the fact that he was apparently uh, pursuing kind of money and new ideas and new businesses all the time, and they just kept collapsing and it wasn't working out for him, and he was clearly a bit all over the place but like always in pursuit of some kind of capital, right? And I find that really interesting that they set kind of that view up of him and then they show comments by somebody who once worked with Britney saying that she really interacted with Britney's father, she didn't like him, and that he regarded his daughter as almost kind of like a business. There's a few comments that they quote in the documentary basically reinforcing the idea that James was more invested in Britney's money and fortune and profitability and just kind of saw her as like, not really a person, you know? Um, There were other kind of quotes here and there about them being estranged. James and Brittany was estranged. They had an alienated relationship. He was predominantly absent throughout her, like, not absent in the sense that he wasn't around, but he wasn't, like, emotionally very present. Like, Brittany had a close relationship with her mother. Her father was kind of just the patriarch of the family. Um, And they kind of pop all this up about, like, this distance, and he just kind of treated her like a money-making machine. And apparently he said to one of these other people when talking about Britney, like he would constantly brag and be like, Britney's going to get rich and buy me a house. The idea that like 
Britney's mom was really wanted Britney to succeed because she loved her and wanted her daughter to be successful. And then the implication and idea is that her father only wanted Britney to succeed so that he could be financially well off. But I think the most interesting and most fucked up part about them discussing the conservatorship, because obviously the documentary very much comes in in an empathetic and humane light for Britney. It's very much pro-free Britney in an underlying way. Uh, But the most fucked up part of the documentary is when they start quoting Andrew Wallet, who was a co-conservator with James Spears, who literally says in court documents that he wants a raise for being the con- for being like part of the conservatorship, and he describes the conservatorship as a highly lucrative hybrid business model. How can a conservatorship, a legal conservatorship for the well-being of the person in the conservatorship, be for profit? You can't be for profit. It doesn't make fucking sense. Like you cannot turn someone's mental well-being into a fucking highly lucrative business. The commodification of her like mental illness is actually fucking wild to me. Like just the concept that that is an acceptable thing to say, that he was able to say that in court and get away with it. I think Britney's conservatorship is the only one in the whole world that's for profit. Something else I found really interesting about it as well, though, was the way it like it actually was making quite a few larger political points. It's very, like, I think it's quite layered, more layered than I would have expected from New York Times. But um, it interviews, like, paparazzi and, like, tabloid editors and stuff as well who were, like, very much involved in the downfall of Britney, who, like, actively pushed her to breaking point. And somebody they interview is Daniel Ramos, who is, a like, photographer. He was one of the main kind of paparazzi guys that stalked Britney everywhere. Uh, and he's able to give kind of some insight into some of her worst moments because he was literally there harassing her with a camera. Like there's a, at one point she literally like beat his car with an umbrella because he wouldn't leave her the fuck alone. This man like stalked her to her partner's or ex-partner's house when she went to pick up the kids. And then when she cried and begged him to go away, he was like, hey, Brittany, how's it going? Fucking heartless. But the interesting thing is like he is like really sure that he hasn't done anything wrong and like we see footage of him like very much harassing her. It is she's like crying, like it's a mess. And he then cut it cuts to his like interview and he's like, "Oh, like she never told us to leave her alone. Like she never once implied that we were upsetting her or in her space. Like she wanted us there. You know, it was like a mutually beneficial relationship. She she needed us, we needed her. Like she was happy for us to be there. Um she never said, she never indicated leave me alone. And then the interviewer is like what about that time when she said, leave me alone? And then it's like, you see footage of her like crying and being like, leave me alone. And it's a really satisfying moment for us as an audience because it's like, yeah, fuck you, you're a fucking liar. But on top of that, it really goes to show just the, the cognitive dissonance of some people and particularly like men when it comes to harassing women. Oh, she never said no. Like, yeah, yes, she like, did. He was like, no, it was like, leave me alone for today. Like not leave me alone forever. <sighs> it's amazing. I mean, this just goes to show- how amazing humans are at just like completely tricking and fooling themselves so they don't actually have to face the consequences or like the moral ramifications for their behavior. Because what we're seeing with with Daniel here is like, if he actually had to acknowledge and really reckon with what he's done, like there's no way you could forgive yourself because he just did completely terrible shit. Yeah, like he's actually a bad person. <laughs> like yeah. I feel comfortable calling him a bad person because he literally broke this woman. And then when she like cried and begged him to leave her alone, he was like, oh, she didn't mean that. What the fuck are you talking about, mate? Like in what world, in what, the cognitive dissonance, right? And just quickly, some of the thoughts I had was that I really enjoyed how sort of 
sensitive and sympathetic the documentary was uh, specifically about the sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, the, the period where she was really blowing up and how it really documented that time and the specific cultural context that sort of weighed upon Britney and ended up, I guess, destroying her. Um, specifically, the fact that she had to navigate this cultural tension of like family values and virginal purity uh, against the sort of misogynistic culture that devours young women and sexualizes them. Like she has to both be this, you know, schoolgirl, innocent, young, virginal type, while also it is required that she sexualizes herself at every single moment. And the thing is, is that it's not even that Britney ended up being a sort of a contradiction. It was just that she was constantly pulled in two directions and then got mangled in the process. It was really sad to watch. And I feel like the documentary really captured that in a really sensitive way. So yeah, the documentary did a really good job at highlighting how Britney, this promising young woman, was torn apart by a system that profits off of her, but doesn't respect her. And speaking about promising young women, because as you see, this, this title isn't called Promising Young Woman, it's Promising Young Women. And that's the ongoing theme of the episode. So do you want to introduce our ne- next topic? Yes. Uh, lovely segue, Mitch. Thank you. Not subtle at all. I adore it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want people to, to miss the, the, the creative genius of this. Yeah, look, uh, Mitch came up with that episode title. He's very proud of it. So <laughs> that's good. But okay, so let's move on to our next segment. I'm just going to give a quick content warning for this segment of the podcast. We are going to be discussing the film Promising Young Woman. Uh, and in relation to that, we're going to be discussing like the rape and murder and brutalization of women. So for anyone who this could be potentially triggering for or a sensitive topic for, please be safe. You can skip to 50 minutes. And that's where we'll be continuing onto a different discussion. Also, for those of you who don't want to see spoilers for Promising Young Woman, I recommend you skip as well. Cool. Let's get into it. Promising Young Woman was a film that came out pretty recently. It was very, very hyped. We were very, very excited for it. I imagine a lot of women were. I know a lot of you listeners were from some Instagram stories I've been putting up lately. When I first saw the trailer, I was hyped because basically it depicted a woman who fakes being drunk, uh, lets creepy, quote unquote, nice guys pick her up and take her home. And then when they inevitably try and sexually assault her, turns out she's not drunk and she fucks them up. And you're like, hell yeah, like get these nice guys, like show them what's right. That's essentially what the trailer is about. And so you think it's kind of going to be like a thriller, like kind of murder movie that like has lots of male suffering and you're like, yes, get him. Uh, basically a revenge revenge movie. Then we went and actually watched it and plot wise it is very different to how the trailer markets the film. So I would say that... The synopsis is pretty much, yes, it starts off with that. Like we are introduced to Cassie, a woman who goes to bars drunk or fake drunk, lets men pick her up. And then when they try and assault her, she's like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And she freaks them out. Uh, But that's where it ends. She just kind of like warns them like verbally not to do that. And then she leaves. And it's very strange and misleading given what the trailer was because we see like, tallies like messy red pen tallies of all these men that we've assumed she's murdered or whatever but then you realize she just tells them oh don't do that and then she like leaves it's very anticlimactic uh and that's like just the very very beginning of the film and the rest of it is like completely unrelated so it's strange it's already a bit jarring going in the film is actually about her cassie a traumatized woman uh who is basically recovering from her best friend having been sexually assaulted in the past 
and it's kind of strange and a bit wishy-washy because first we just kind of watch her recover from it. We see her day-to-day life. She, we find out she's like a med school dropout who's like not really coping and just kind of working her like cafe job. Then she meets a guy. It's kind of a bit disjointed in my opinion. Like I don't really know where it's, it's going. Uh, and then we start to see her like actually start to try and get revenge on some of the institutional situations that caused her best friend to be raped and that didn't assist her best friend after she was raped and it's like i guess it kind of gets a bit revengey again but it's very disjointed it's very confusing and then it kind of ends kind of unresolved as well specifically she doesn't actually really exact revenge on anybody in a meaningful way and then she dies she is literally murdered by the guy that gang raped her best friend that's how it ends it is pretty fucked uh, very controversial ending. I was furious and also like very triggered actually watching it. Like it was upsetting. Um, there was no content warning for this film, by the way, in any capacity. Uh, but yeah, something that I found really frustrating about it. And I, I mean, there's a lot that I found really frustrating about it. But before I even get into the specifics, just the plot was very confusing. Like going in there expecting like a story that you, I have been told this is about and then getting a completely different film is very confusing, especially one so disjointed. It's like I, I find it hard to give you a summary of what it's about because I don't fully know how to summarize this film because it's so disjointed. Like first we're getting this revenge section with the drunk stuff and then there's like quite a long middle bit of her just living her life and like I guess recovering. And starting that relationship with the, the Bo Burnham character who is the sort of the single nice guy. Yeah, like an actually nice guy, not like film. nice guy, nice guy. Also, also, we are led to believe. Um, and then it kind of culminates when she finds out that actually Ryan, her new partner, who she's like loving being with and has finally recovered with all her like rape trauma, was actually involved in the gang rape of her best friend who I assume killed herself. We know she died. We don't really know the specifics, but it's implied that she killed herself uh, because she wasn't able to cope with like the court system and everything that was going on. It was very traumatic for her very sad so she finds out that ryan this guy who we've been led to believe is a nice guy was actually kind of involved and then she basically is like fuck this like i'm getting my revenge and she like shows up to the bachelor party of the original rapist uh we think she's gonna murder him because it's like it's very built up like we see her getting ready we see her carrying all this stuff then she gets there and she like ties him to the bed and we're like expecting some Fucking like dramatic violent shit. Yeah, from she was her. gonna like carve uh, her friend's name all across his Which, body. To be honest, even that I found slightly anticlimactic because I really was led to believe that she was gonna murder people in this movie. Like they they marketed it as her being like, you know, consumed with revenge to the point of being like violent. You know, like, that was what we were marketed. Like she was gonna be this like femme fatale kill bill kind of vibe. Uh, but she just like ties him up and is gonna carve Nina into his forehead. And then he, like, breaks free and fucking murders her. And it's a really long, drawn-out, uncomfortable... Oh, uncomfortable is, you know, an understatement. A scene where he, like, smothers her with a pillow until she suffocates to death. And we, like, hear her screaming and her sobbing. And then the, sh- the film shifts, right? So now he is suddenly the main character, um, and his friend comes in and he's all like, what the fuck, bro? But then like, don't worry, bro. Like it was an accident. And they basically burn her body um, and then move on with their day. This guy whose bachelor party was the rapist then ends up getting married. And then at his wedding, he gets caught by the police because before she went to uh, do whatever she was planning to do to him, she actually tipped off 
like a local lawyer and a police officer and blah, blah, blah. So in the end, I guess she kind of quote unquote wins because she gets him arrested for her own murder. But like she had to get herself murdered for any justice. And I, I felt like, I mean, I'd rather her just alive and not pay in the justice than her dead and getting just. It was just mm, very uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. But I feel like that now that I've given you the overview, I can kind of get into the real meaty specifics of what I found very fucked up and anti-feminist in this film. I thought it was very unfeminist. My first one, which I've already touched upon, was the marketing of the film. Um, the trailer was very much like an empowering woman kind of vibe. It capitalized off the Me Too movement. It was like coming at a time where Bombshell had just come out as well, uh, which was another movie about women essentially getting justice over like a rapist. And it was coming out at a time where we were looking for media that has like like female heroes that win, especially female like victims of sexual assault that win. The political context of the trailer coming out is actually really important. And this this film was marketed to survivors, I think, and to women and feminists in particular. This film was being marketed to women who care about sexual assault survivors, women who care about feminism, women who are frustrated with the way that we are treated by men um, and by the patriarchy and by rape culture and by sexism. It was very mu- it was very specific and very niche marketing because men were not going to watch that trailer and be like, hell yeah, I want to watch her torture some men. Because people like me were like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Give me some male tears. Like, I want this. So I found that that was really exploitative. Really exploitative. Because I understand, look, a lot of movies are misleading in their trailers. It happens all the time. I get it. Um, especially when you want to have your red herrings and your plot twists and you don't want to give the whole movie away, you're obviously going to have a misleading trailer. But for this particular movie, in this particular in, like instance, I actually think it was incredibly exploitative and predatory because there was no trigger warning or content warning because the film actively brutalizes all the women pretty much in it, except for like one. There is only one woman in this film who is not brutalized, okay? Or, or at least hurt or fucked up in some way. Um. The movie, like, use, I don't know, it just uses rape and potential rape and all this stuff as plot devices to, like, suck in survivors and then has an incredibly traumatic ending that gives no payoff that I imagine would have been very triggering for a lot of survivors. I, when I shared this on my story, a lot of you reached out to me via DMs and told me how upset you were watching the movie because you felt like it was made for you because it was because you were told it was made for you and then you went and watched it and you essentially watched somebody else get murdered uh by a man and 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 that was it you just you just watched all her work go for nothing so to use vulnerable women as a marketing thing to get them to watch your movie, to like purposefully omit the rest of your movie and only use the first section of it in your trailer to get this particular group of to watch your movie only to fucking traumatize them. It's predatory. Like it was actively exploiting and trying to make money off and capitalize off and commodify rape survivors, in my opinion. And I know this film was made by like a feminist woman, apparently, uh, but I really, really want to contest how feminist this film is. Going on, like moving on from the marketing of the film, it actually, surprisingly... <laughs> uses rape or potential rape as punishment for women in like a way that isn't criticized enough for it to be like self-aware in the film. Uh, At some point, Cassie, the main character, uh, meets up with an old female friend of hers from uni who was complacent in the patriarchy and therefore complacent in her friend's rape because she didn't take the accusation seriously at the time. This is like many years ago, like seven years ago or something, her like college friend. 
And then she tricks, she basically like gets her drunk as fuck then leaves her with a guy to employ like so that that woman wakes up the next morning and thinks she's been raped like she plays a psychological mind game on this woman to convince her that she's raped as revenge for not being supportive at the time and i just think that is so fucking unacceptable it is unacceptable to use rape as a punishment for women who are complacent in the patriarchy it is unacceptable. I don't care what that woman has done. She will never deserve to be raped. And to, for this to be a film about how unacceptable rape is and how hurtful rape is and how much rape can destroy a woman's like mental health, to then use, like for the main character to then use rape as like a tool to hurt another woman is fucked up. And we find out towards the end, because in, initially we genuinely think that woman was raped. Then we find out, Cassie, the main character, reveals that actually she just paid that guy to, like, put the drunk woman to bed and make it seem like she had potentially slept with him. Uh, but he didn't actually do anything. Like, she, she didn't make him do anything. And I just didn't find that a good enough explanation because for all we know and for all she knows, he could have raped her. Like, she left her this woman alone when she was drunk out of her mind, unable to consent with a man who you don't know who you paid to like fake rape. What if he actually raped her? Like we just, the whole movie is about the fact that guys, when given the opportunity, when presented with a woman who cannot consent, often rape her. The fact that this happens a lot. The fact that many men, no matter how nice they are, when given the opportunity, rape women, right? So then to just backtrack on that, put this woman in, in, the, in that same situation and then just assume she didn't get raped goes against the ethos of the film, goes against what the film is saying, and goes against the feminist nature of the film. And I think what we're also touching on here is that I think this is mostly intentional. I think the film is trying to be morally ambiguous. It's trying to show morally dubious characters, trying to navigate this really difficult situation. But the issue is, is that the film is trying to be sort of a stand-in for a political message. It's not really a character study. It's very much like this film exists to serve a political purpose. At least that's the way I interpreted it. So when it's trying to serve that purpose, the ambiguity and the sort of the incoherent messages of it really do pile up and then become problematic. Well, this director is like actively like treating this like a feminist film. This is why I think it's unacceptable because she is talking about this film like it's a feminist film. So the moral ambiguity and stuff is like conflicting with this because you can't say it's a feminist film but then say, oh, but it's all really morally ambiguous because is it feminist or not, right? Like that's that's the point. You can't profit off of feminism and then do this creepy rapey shit against women. You can't really do both. And I think the film doesn't really know what it wants to be in that sense. Yeah. And then it's... And it, it makes it damaging, to be honest. I think it has really damaging ideas about women and feminism that, again, this shit is not self-aware enough. Like, it doesn't feel intentional enough. Watching it, I'm, I don't feel like I'm getting a message. I just feel like they have fucked up. That's what I feel like. Um, especially, like, going back to the potential rape of that character and, I guess, the trivializing of her rape. Like, it is used as a way to punish her. There's an implication there that, like, women who aren't good allies to other women can deserve rape or can deserve the trauma of rape. Because even if she wasn't raped, for several weeks, she thinks she's been raped and she is traumatized and upset and distressed, obviously. And there was an idea that she deserved that, that she deserved to feel the trauma of rape, which I just think is a fucking dangerous thing to put into the world as an idea, especially because like that is an ideology used all the time to discredit women who get raped. And I know that this 
like they were trying to make a comment on that. Like I know that Cassie, the main character, did that because she was like, oh, well, you didn't believe somebody. Now we don't believe you kind of thing. How does it feel? But we can't be doing that shit. Like we can't be doing that shit at all because eventually we get to the idea of, oh, rape is only problematic when the girl is like a good girl or she didn't deserve it. And there's all this deserving and there's like rape as a punishment shit. Like it's fucked up and the movie does it too much for it to just be a political, like self-aware thing. Something else that I found really frustrating, again, I guess related, is like the other woman who is also like Cathy's exacting revenge upon is the principal of the college institution who also wasn't helpful when Nina was raped. She goes there and tricks this woman uh, into believing that her daughter is being raped and then like basically psychologically tortures her, right? As like her revenge. And then reveals at the end, oh, lol, she didn't get raped. I just tortured you, but whatever. Which, you know what? I don't like care that much. But the point is, if you compare that to the way men have been treated in this film... The women in this film were actually tortured to far more of an extent than any of the male characters, despite the fact that this is a movie about men and men being rapists and men being creeps. And I just feel like it completely failed at creating like a commentary because I understand wanting the rapist at the end to kind of get away with it as a point of the failings of the justice system. But throughout the whole film, we are led to believe that she is hurting men and she's like not, even with the whole like with men that she goes home with who attempt to rape her and sometimes do. And she's like, oh, don't do that. And like, they just, they just get embarrassed. Like there's no suffering. This movie tortured its female characters for no reason. And then like let all the male characters get away with what they want and gave one, the lawyer that pretty much led to Nina committing suicide because he was harassing her and interrogating her. He is given a redemption arc. You were telling me this man deserves a redemption arc and the college friend who was you know, also a victim of the patriarchy who was complicit because she is a woman in a fucking male-dominated field. She didn't deserve a redemption arc? Like, the film just didn't have empathy for women despite being about women, but it showed empathy for men and I don't understand that. I don't understand that and I don't think it was intentional enough. I don't know if it was fully intentional, but it certainly wasn't intentional enough to be feminist. In fact, I think it was actively harmful and I could go into a whole nother tangent about even just the racial elements. There are literally only two black characters in this movie. One of them is a rapist. Like, I mean, there's so many other things I could say about it. But I just think the inconsistencies in the plot and the style, the inconsistencies in the feminist message, the fact that it allowed rape to be somewhat acceptable in certain circumstances, the fact that it actually traumatized and tortured its female characters and like gave a slap on the wrist to its male characters, un- like not in an ironic sense was unacceptable and then on top of that we had to watch her get fucking murdered at the end brutally in a way that was preventable so before all of you people who like the movie come at me and be like oh it was a commentary on like how realistic you know it is like in the real world women get murdered by men first of all I know (laughs) I know I'm very well aware as I imagine many of the women who want to watch this movie are we're very well aware of our vulnerabilities and we're very well aware about the power men can exact over us in murdering us. I mean, at the moment in Australia, in my age bracket, my leading cause of death at the moment is my partner. At the moment, if I die, I am most likely to die by my romantic partner murdering me. Like, I fucking know, you know, I'm aware of these really sad elements of, my, of just being a woman, as I imagine a lot of women know. And I just think it was unnecessary to give us, quote unquote, a realistic ending, especially because I don't think it was realistic, given the setup of the movie as well. We are told how super smart she is. She was at the top of her class in med school, whatever, like super genius woman. Even post her death, we see all this like planning she did before she died of how she's going to get them caught. Like she's clearly a genius, but she didn't 
know a better way of like handcuffing him to a bed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's unsurprising that the kinky, uh, plushy handcuffs wouldn't hold. Yeah, and it also just seems strange because, like, I was expecting her to whip out, like, a paralytic or something, you know? Like, we've really built her up as having a really incredible sense of planning. She also says, before she goes to the bachelor party, she's like, I've been thinking about how I'm going to do this for a really long time. We're expecting something wild. We are expecting, like, something genius. All she does is handcuff him, he breaks free, and and he kills her. Like, there was no planning involved. She didn't, like, have a secret weapon. She didn't, like, paralyze. She didn't, like actually consider literally any of the things any woman would consider when having to like fight a man the first thing I would think about is my physical vulnerability as a smaller person than him so it was actually I think unrealistic because they built her up to be something that she wasn't and it was inconsistent with the movie inconsistent with the character and then they were like oh but it's realistic that she would have died and I'm like a character like her though a regular woman yes it's probably realistic that she would have been murdered in that situation. But you just built her up to be smarter than everybody else, three steps ahead than everybody else. But this is realistic. And I want to really question, because there seems to be this idea that I'm hearing a lot lately about how important or valuable it is for a movie to show something realistic. Like, we love that. Or how realistic, how topical. And I'm just like... I don't need another movie to show me a woman being murdered. I'm very fucking aware of this as an issue. And honestly, we're murdered in everything. Every crime show is about our brutalization. Every movie, every horror movie, the first thing that's happening is women are being fucking brutalized. Like, we've got an entire podcast episode on this from a few weeks ago. I don't need to be reminded about my vulnerability and about the fact that I'm going to be fucking murdered. Like, I don't need to be reminded. We don't need it to be realistic. And it is not feminist to show us just another movie where a strong woman at the end of the day is overpowered and murdered by a man. Like, I just cannot understand how that is valuable today, especially in a movie that was marketed to survivors. How is it valuable to show survivors that inevitably we can't win? And that makes me question who the fuck this movie is for. Who was this movie for? Created by a feminist director who has a large feminist following, marketed to women feminist women, particularly women that I feel, you know, that they need a sense of justice when it comes to rape and sexual assault. If you're going to market it to women and it's created by women, then who the fuck is it for? Because I don't need to learn these messages about rape. I don't need to learn, you know, the sad reality of rape. Men need to learn that. Men need to learn that. So I feel like this movie was marketed to women, but made for men. Because feminists are not learning anything from this movie. None of this is new information to us. It's just depressing. It's just a depressing reminder of our vulnerability. So, like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, the inconsistencies in the messaging and everything. And then in who the target audience is? Fuck this movie. And I think what's important to note as well is that, I mean, we had listeners message message you about how they were having, like, panic attacks and, and real trauma responses within this film. If it was maybe you know, um, for a more niche audience or if it wasn't uh, this mainstream general audience film and instead was like an art house film, then I think it's it's more appropriate to do like this really brutal shit. But you also have to be considerate of like, you're not really teaching a lesson if you're just traumatizing the people you're watching. Because I imagine the people going to see this are more sensitive to this issue. Exactly. And that's what I mean earlier about it just being predatory. Because I feel like it was just a capitalistic moment where they saw that Me Too was in and they were like, let's make this movie for these people. And it was just, I just don't think it was thoughtful at all. I don't think it was thoughtful. I don't think it was sensitive. I don't think it was tastefully done. I, I, just, I just don't fucking get it with this movie. And enough of you were upset about it to really like reinforce my opinions on this as well. And I know I just mentioned this slightly earlier, but 
after she dies, right, after she is killed, uh, then there's, like, all these scheduled text messages from her that, like, Ryan gets about, did you think this was over, winky face? And, like, it kind of tries to show her still being in power after her, like, murder. Um, You know, she tips off the lawyer before she goes, being like, I'm going to X and X location if something happens to me call the police and report so-and-so because that's just, you know, basically telling, I basically got murdered. Um, which, again, just doesn't make any sense because despite the point being it's inevitable, apparently, according to the director, the point being like this is inevitable, women are, in, you know, just not powerful enough to overcome men, they will inevitably hurt us, but then to still give her this weird arc after death where she actually was in control all along is confusing because did she plan to die or not? I sort of got these like 13 reasons why vibe from that because what happened in that show was uh, while it was meant to be about how dreadful teen suicide was, we ultimately got a story that romanticized the suicide in this way because it's like this girl, you know, shook up her community after this and it really made this the suicidal event quite romantic. Uh, and I think that's sort of what happened here. Like, despite it's awful that she got brutalized, it's like, well, she won in the end. It was actually the fact that she got brutalized has been within this film, a little bit romanticized. Would you agree? Yes, I think so too. And that's why I really found it very icky. Because if she, like, after she was murdered, if the tone of the movie was, if you were just like, fuck. Because when we're sitting in the, you're like, when she's being murdered, you're just thinking there's no way. Like, she's going to show, like, something is going to happen where she is going to escape and win because of the way this film has been built up. Then she doesn't. And you're like, holy fucking shit. I cannot believe that just happened. And then, like, while you're still processing... And you're and like, if, if it was just that, then I would have been like, maybe slightly more open to the idea that it was like a subversive ending or whatever. But then the text messages start popping up with the winky faces of her still being in control. We get a happy ending because despite the fact that she died, she still retained some control and was able to get him arrested. And that is justice enough, apparently. And I did not like the message that we have to fucking die or be martyrs to get justice and that that would be a worthy sacrifice i feel like in making it seem like it was all it was a plan all along it really minimized her death overall it was just incredibly disappointing i feel like it had a lot of potential to be like actually a very rewarding and like good film that was genuinely helpful to its audience but instead it just kind of exploited them used them for profits betrayed them and was just bad like for feminism i don't know i think I don't really care what the audience, like what the director thinks, but that, that's my take. Disliked it. Thumbs down. Our last segment of today is actually about cancel culture, which I know seems kind of random, but it is relevant. Mostly because of an interaction I had the other day that kind of opened up, I think, a conversation that is worth having. Somebody in my DMs recently accused me and women of color in general who are critical of some of Clem Ford's uh, feminism uh, of cancelling her, of like tearing other women down. Uh, basically what happened was I shared a tweet by a First Nations woman called Laura, uh, who is an academic, um, where she criticised Clem Ford for some performative activism, re-white like feminism. An angry response to that, and particularly a response accusing me of cancelling Clem Ford or attempting to cancel Clem Ford with that tweet was actually quite baffling to me, especially because that tweet only had like 12 likes in the screenshot. This woman is not super famous or well-known. I am not that famous or well-known either. We're both pretty small platforms. I think it really was worth opening up a conversation about like the power structure of cancellation because maybe we haven't talked about that enough. Specifically, the part that I found interesting 
was the idea that I can cancel someone. Just like I can just decide one day to cancel someone. Because it makes you wonder what cancelling really is. Like when I think of cancel culture, when I think of like what it means to cancel a celebrity, I think of them becoming deplatformed, losing their relevance, being boycotted in some capacity and potentially losing a source of income because of it, right? That's generally what I think of cancellation. Like we are shutting these people out. We are not letting them be a part of our discourse. So I find it really interesting when we can accuse people of cancelling somebody because there is a difference between cancelling and criticising someone. I think you can say, I don't like that person's work and you are not cancelling them. Especially because, like, I mean, if I can use the Clem Ford conversation in this discussion, I, as an individual, do not have the power to cancel somebody like Clem Ford. I'm not sure if I have the power to cancel anyone, but if I did try to cancel Clem Ford, I literally couldn't. I literally couldn't because there are actually like racial and like like very legitimate class power structures here that would prevent me as an individual from having that power. I don't think like rich, white, famous people generally get cancelled. I don't think cancel culture in that capacity exists. A form of cancel culture exists for sure, but... The only people that really suffer from cancel culture or that really get actually cancelled are typically people from marginalised communities, are typically like women of colour, actually. It's typically people that come from a group that is seen as marginalised or minority or like, I guess, not part of the ruling class and then they are targeted and driven from a platform. There are plenty of examples of like black feminists and black activists on Twitter that get driven off the platform, that get deplatformed because of targeted attacks by like right-wing groups, right? Or I guess another really good example of cancelling being actually pretty fucking terrifying and effective is with Yasmin Abdul-Majid here in Australia. I'm sure a lot of you know of her and she's the one who put up a tweet basically supporting refugees uh, during the Anzac time, saying lest we forget in terms of like Nauru and Manus. And she was fucking vilified in the media and attacked by all these right-wing people that were talking about like wanting to run her over like it was violent and disgusting and she had to flee the country and she was practically deplatformed she lost a lot of her writing opportunities she was no longer invited to comment on things like she would have like that is to me like what a cancellation is supposed to look like if we like believe in cancel culture this doesn't happen to rich white celebrities that get quote-unquote cancelled people like you know johnny depp who is probably a very good example of recent kind of cancel culture uh, because of all the domestic abuse allegations and stuff. But, like, this man is still, like, rich and, like, wealthy and comfortable, and I still see him in perfume ads as recently as a few months ago. And he was, like, in the latest Harry Potter movie as well, like, a year or two ago, despite the domestic abuse allegations and the violent allegations being ongoing for a very long time. Council culture to people who are part of the power structure of society, who uphold society and have a monopoly of a society, doesn't work because they are the one who chooses as a platform. And I think I really want to just bring this up kind of quickly because random people of marginalized communities lack the power to counsel rich white people. We can't do it. Our opinions do not hold the weight and sway that would be necessary to counsel a rich white person. We actually can't do it. And to accuse people, especially women of color, of trying to cancel people when we're just having a critical conversation. It's actually like a very dangerous form of white feminism, which we've discussed previously in like the first episode because it's gaslighting and it's like 
treating women of color as aggressors for having critical opinions. I can criticize somebody's feminism and not be canceling them and attacking them and trying to like have a go at them. The fact that I'm not allowed to have a critical voice without it being demonized as me coming for somebody is actually racist. Because this is the angry brown woman trope. This is the angry black woman trope that we talk about all the time, that I talk about all the time. And it's frustrating me that this is still an issue that we're having in our circles and we need to be more like vigilant about it because I'm starting to see a very uncomfortable trope of white feminists co-opting the feminist ideologies around women of colour and then using it to further their own white feminism, like really perverting intersectional feminism. And I guess that's kind of the example I'm having now with like accusing a woman of colour of tearing down other women because she is criticising the racial elements of their politics. Like if I call a white woman racist, am I tearing down other women? This is gaslighting. This is white feminism. This is like making women of color aggressors for standing up for themselves. It's not acceptable. Um, especially like with Clem Ford, I don't think she's like a racist. <laughs> and I never said that. Um, I'm just using her as an example of like a, a wealthy white feminist who is well known in the media, comparable to me, somebody who is like pretty new to the scene and does not have even a quarter of the following that Clem does. I don't have the power to do anything to her. <laughs> I literally couldn't at all cancel Clem. But if Clem wanted to cancel me, just like hypothetically in another universe, she totally could because she has the societal sway to do that because her voice has the impact and the power behind it, especially from a racial and class lens, to do that. And in case this isn't like clear enough, the point that I want to make, I do want to kind of bring it up. There's like so many examples. We just talked about Britney Spears. In the documentary with Britney Spears, there is a section that focuses on Justin Timberlake and how he actually had an active hand in her downfall because after their breakup, he went and told everybody how much she hurt him, broke his heart, like talked about her in really disgusting ways in the media. There's like uh, audio from a radio show where he brags about having fucked her. It's pretty disgusting and very misogynistic. And Britney is the one who suffered for that. Like Britney got cancelled despite the fact, cancelled quote unquote in that era, despite the fact that Justin Timberlake was actually the one really instigating bad behaviour and horrible like things that he's done. I mean, the Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake situation at the Super Bowl was like within that era, Janet Jackson, a promising young woman, by the way, I don't know how much you guys know about that, but there was a Super Bowl performance where Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake were performing together and he like goes to pull a part of her costume and rips off the breast section of her costume. So her boob literally gets exposed to all these people and the backlash she faced for that, she never recovered from. She still has not recovered from what happened to her at Super Bowl. She was instantly vilified despite the fact that he is the one who literally ripped her clothes open so the whole world saw her tit. He's the one who did that, but she is the one that suffered for it. She had to come out with an apology for it. She was made responsible for it. She had to apologize for making the show, you know, not friendly to families. She had to apologize for subjecting them to this sexualized thing for this nudity when she literally didn't do anything. Like he did that to her. And immediately after that, she was basically uninvited from the Grammys. She was basically like deplatformed, you know, in the, in the, a less modern meaning of the word, but she was basically outcast. She was cancelled. Justin Timberlake literally went to the Grammy show that she was not allowed to go to. 
he then like bragged about it and bragged about giving people something to talk about, laughed about it, won a couple of Grammys and has like been living his life ever since. Now, after the Britney documentary, it's kind of resurfaced a lot of criticism on Justin Timberlake and like really misogynistic behavior of the past. And I'm like, this man never got canceled. You know who got canceled? Janet Jackson for doing fucking nothing because she's a woman of color, because she's a marginalized group. And it is so easy to vilify and demonize us and drive us off system. Whereas people like Justin Timberlake get away with whatever the fuck they want to get away with. Like there are actually very few, if any cases of like rich white celebrities actually being canceled. Even at the moment with Army Hammer, who is, you know, just been exposed as being like a rapist and a cannibalist and all this other stuff. Like it's obviously very fucked up. But he literally is still going to go on being like a wealthy man, even if he gets quote unquote cancelled. Even if he never gets a role in a show in his life after today, like he is still going to be wealthy and comfortable. He can just go and live in his cabin in the fucking mountains and be a happy dude. Like he's not actually capable of suffering because of cancer culture, because of his class power, because of his like power as a rich white cis man who gets away fucking anything because he's handsome. Like, There are so many power structures involved with cancellation that we really need to talk about. We can't just go in and criticize any like brown person of trying to cancel somebody because they disagree with them because they're criticizing how intersectional their politics are. You don't get to do that. And especially white people don't get to do that. Especially white feminists. Y'all do not get to come in here and tell women of color that they don't have a right to criticize people like, I don't know, Clem Ford, any other influential white person. And that they're just cancelling them and tearing them down. The audacity. The audacity to take ideas like that. I was told that I don't, in that conversation, that I don't uplift marginalised voices enough to be criticising Clem Ford. And I was like, I literally am a marginalised voice. That's actually like my job. <laughs> um, but the point is, I'm noticing a dangerous trend of quote unquote woke white people and particularly white women who build a following of being allies to people of color and to black women being allies supporting us and then the moment we disagree with like somebody that they idolize we are actually anti-feminist we are tearing down other women we are being I was I was being performative I was like it's literally not possible for my activism to be performative about race when I'm literally of that race. Like, it's, it's, it's genuine. This is literally my life. I literally live being a brown person every day. <laughs> but it's just, like, it's shocking to me that this is becoming a thing now with white women accusing black women or brown women or women of colour of being performative, of being fake with their politics the moment we don't agree with, like, an influential white person. This is dangerous. This needs to stop, like, right now. <laughs> Like, that is actually just racist. And I'm saying that now in this podcast because I'm noticing it becoming a thing and I want to call it out immediately. Like, if you catch yourself doing that, you need to stop. You need to remember the power structures at hand and the lack of power we hold and all the power that you hold and the implications that come with you accusing people like us of being aggressive or negative or bad or detrimental to feminism because we want to have critical discussions about race and race and feminism. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our listeners. Uh, specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Everett, Naya, Rachel, Lucia, Sarah, Liz, Bell, and Katie. So thank you so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. 
If signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.com forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and the Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Thank you. Bye. Bye.